This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. First of all, thank you very much for your patience in what, is, as you can see, is an exceptionally full house today. And following on from the, the young kids who are seeing Ju Julia Donaldson's event, it was very hard for us to clear them out. Fear not. <laughs> you will have your full hour with today's speaker, Melvin Bragg. I'm Nick Barley and I'm the director of this festival and it's a great honour to be able to introduce Melvin to you. He first joined us at the very first Edinburgh Book Festival back in 1983 and he's back today for his 18th event since then. Of course, when he joined us back then he was already a celebrity. By then the South Bank show was a strapping five-year-old and Melvin was going to continue as a presenter of that uh, until last year and I think he built it into almost certainly the most influential television arts series in history. These days, of course, you also know him for his work on the radio, and earlier this year, In Our Time celebrated its 500th edition. If I was to list all of Melvin Bragg's awards and honours, I could take up the whole hour. I won't do that, you'll be happy to hear. But suffice it to say that this BAFTA award-winning honorary doctor is also Chancellor of the University of Leeds, and in his other day job in the House of Lords, he's known as Baron Bragg of Wigton in the county of Cumbria. <laughs> Quite how he finds the time with all this work also to write novels and books is beyond me. But I'm delighted to say that today he's here to discuss an extraordinary book, a book which is probably the most revolutionary book in the last 500 years. It is, of course, the King James Bible. And he'll be signing copies of that book after the event in the LRB signing tent just around the corner. But first, please join me in raising the roof, Edinburgh style, for the great Melvin Bragg. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's great to be in Edinburgh. We're filming uh, here for um, programs I'm doing called, well, so far called Class and Culture 1911 to 2011. If anybody has a better title, for goodness <laughs> sake, tell me, because we're desperate for one. And we were up here the last few days filming around this great festival event, not just the books, but all the rest. I first came here in, uh, to make a film in 1963 for Monitor. One of the fringe... Anyway, that's enough of that. I'm going to talk about a book that I've forgotten to bring along. Uh, <laughs> it's called uh, The Book of Books, which is what the Bible was called for many years, and still is by some people, because it is a book of books. It's, at the moment, 66 books. Um, consists of 66 books. There used to be 80, until some spoil sports in the previous centuries cut out what they called the Apocrypha. And if you can get hold of it, please do. It's worth reading, the Apocrypha. It's got real serious revelations in it. This is the 400th anniversary of the publication, almost of the month, of the King James Bible, and there could scarcely be a better place to talk about its impact. After all, he was born in the castle across the way there. He was a brilliant Bible scholar. That isn't just the usual praise you give to kings and queens and princes in this country. He was. By the age of eight, it is authentically reported, he could translate any verse of the Bible, you open it anywhere, from uh, Latin into French into English. 
He ha said he'd read about the Bible and the Bible in every European language, and it was probably true. Uh, and so it's no, as it were, accident, as they say, that when he, after being king of Scotland, James VI, for 36 years, he was king when he was one year old, when he went south and became James I of England as well, uh, he, almost as an aside, I think as his last gift to Presbyterianism, decided there'd be a new Bible. His last gift to Presbyterianism because he sort of turned his back on it when he went south. The lush pastures of England, all that grotesque flattery, all those gilded boats and foppish lords and great wealth went to his head. Why wouldn't it? He loved it. And he said, I'd come back to my beloved Scotland so often he went back once. <laughs> uh, uh, but he and the Presbyterians thought they'd got him and he was awful to them at the Hampton Court Conference in 1603, or 1604. He was terrible with them. But Reynolds, a great Presbyterian and a great man and a great translator said, how, he probably said something rather different to this, but if you'll excuse me, how about a new Bible? Uh, to which James said, yes, and a few years later, 1611, it was published. Now, my contention here is that, as Nick said, it is the most important book published in the last 400 years. And I think that for two reasons. First of all, for the spreading of the Protestant faith, which has been a colossal achievement and for many years was thought of as a great success, although in its wake, like the spread of everything, like the spread of every ideology that has ever been, it brought darkness and destruction as well as light and healing and hope. But it went around the globe and it circled languages and it was translated, circled the English language globe and it was translated into many other languages and as a instrument of spreading faith, it is non-pari. But that's not what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about the faith. Each of you in this room has a faith, or doesn't, um, uh, is anti-Christian, or of another persuasion, or indifferent, uh, whatever it is. And that's something private. And that's a private matter, I think, and not something that I want to discuss here. I spend some time talking about it in the book, of course I do. But what I'm talking about here is the history of the impact. Now, history belongs to all of us. History is something we have in common. History is a public act that we make among each other to recognize how we have become what we are. And the history of the impact of the King James Bible over the last 400 years, and particularly its, its history as depicted in the journals and by the critics in the last 100 years, has been brutally excised. It's as if it had never been. And yet, it's one of the great shanks of the better parts of our civilization, as I hope to indicate. But it's been rubbed out. Event after event over the last 400 years are described in terms of economic progress, social progress, political progress, the Enlightenment, and the Bible is way down there. Way down there. When again and again, when you re-examine those events, the Bible was the trigger. The Bible was the catalyst. The Bible was the leader. We've rubbed it out for reasons to do with, well, there are too many to explain, and I'd take too long trying to go into them. But we've rubbed it out. And so this is, well, it isn't there. This, <laughs> well, imagine. <laughs> That's a good festival, isn't it? <laughs> 
So this is an act of restoration. It's partly an act of gratitude on my part. I was brought up very strongly as a Christian, Anglican as a boy, and was powerfully Christian until I was 18. And then it faded and faded and faded, and there are things I can talk about and, and pulses from it and reverence for it and lack of understanding about parts of it and lack of belief in a great central part of it, but it's still part of me. We're all built from layers. You don't cast anything off, and it's still there. And it's partly, I was not upset, I was angry, actually. When I saw this anniversary coming up and read about the books that were coming out, some very good books indeed, uh, dealing with the way that the Bible was put together by those scholars, those 47 or 52 scholars, depending on who you read, but nobody was talking about the impact it had. Nobody seemed to get a grip on the fact that we've wiped it out. I can't say that often enough, and so I'll say it for the last time here. If we wipe out things which in our history are unique to us in this uneasy period of lack of confidence and not understanding quite what our nations are anymore and allowing ourselves to be buffeted and not saying what we really have done and, and are, if we allow all that to go and say, oh, well then we are condemned to be embalmed in the superficialities of the present. And that's no way to live. This is a great part of a great history, with its dark side. Which history does not have its dark side? But this is a great part. And I'd like to try to summarize a few of the things that I say in that book <laughs> in the next few, next 50 minutes or, 50, or whatever I've got. The first great struggle was to get the Bible translated into English. Ah, we have musical accompaniment. To get the Bible translated into English. In, the, in 381, the Bible was translated into Latin. Various versions were brought together and translated into Latin by a man who became St. Jerome. Uh, it's when Constantine became a Christian and the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. And people, or most people, spoke Latin and you had the Latin Bible called the Vulgate. And so it was generally understood by most people. Uh, and there it was, and it lasted for a long time. It lasted until it lasted for until recently, and it's still there, still read and, and, and used by some people. But what happened to it was that for two reasons it became a sacred text, and sacred texts have something to be said for them, but they can, they can like everything else, be a bar, stop, be a block. And what happened when, when the Roman Empire broke up and then the Holy Roman Empire broke up and vernacular languages started to appear in Europe, fewer and fewer and fewer people spoke Latin, but the church had Latin. And by then, in the early Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, the church was a power in Europe. It owned masses of land. It could raise an army. It was probably the wealthiest potentate in Europe. It could finance wars, which it did, the Crusades, and so on and so on. And they had Latin. And they kept Latin. It became a sacred language, like the language that the pharaoh's priests had, sacred to them. Only they knew it, so it was very important for them to keep it. In those cathedrals, you see the screens where common people were screened out, so they could not even hear the Latin sometimes. It was murmured over the altar. So it was a sacred language in that power known as the church. It also became a powerful instrument of authority in the state. State papers, uh, all state correspondence, diplomacy, and all that sort of thing was conducted in Latin. And that, too, was good to be exclusive. Again and again, authority and authoritarians have used language to keep people out. And this was being used to keep people out. 
Now, one thing is worth saying here is that, that the idea of a religion and the idea of politics was completely intermeshed. I'm talking about the Middle Ages. You didn't say, oh, that's a political act, that's a religious act. That was an act. And they came together. That's one thing that's worth remembering. And while I'm on about this, worth remembering, sorry about this, but still, what I'm going to talk about a lot of the time is people every bit, every bit, as clever as me and, and most of you, um, who are... <laughs> I am in Edinburgh, uh, and we, well, I read history at university, and I've been reading it ever since, on and off, and you get your facts right, and you have three sources, and all that sort of stuff, and that's right, it's rigorously taught in, in the UK, in Great Britain, and that's fine, that's good. But one thing I realise now is that something was missing in the teaching, which I had as a kid when I read historical bits in comics, or something, and it comes back to what Einstein said. When Einstein was asked, what was the greatest thing? What was the greatest thing that, that enabled him to be the physicist, the mathematician that he was? He didn't say his teachers, although he was very grateful to his teachers. Very generous man. He didn't say Newton, although he thought Newton's was the greatest mind that they'd ever been. What he said was imagination. Above all, imagination. Now, we have to imagine that people exactly like us believed from until quite recently, and some still do, but in our nation, until quite recently believed that the Bible told the true history of the world, that God had spoken to Moses, that not only had there been a Jesus Christ, but there was a resurrection, there was an ascension, there was, they believed that. And that is in the way they thought, the way they acted, and that is part of the argument that we take forward from them. But they believed that. But this business of English became a passion for some men. Um, and we're talking about a men's world at, at that time. We know that B translated St. John into English because it's well reported by people around him. Uh, and the great Bede, father of English history, father of Britain in a way at that time with the Bede and the Lindisfarne Gospels and so on, uh, where we, we began to be what we became, first of all, there. Uh, and Bede was the knitting of it together. Um, and he also said at that time he wished he'd written some of his, or many of his, 32 books in the English language. Already the dynamic between wanting the English language to challenge the Latin was there. And we're talking about the late, eighth, early, late 7th, early 8th century. Anyway, he translated it. It's supposed to be a beautiful translation. And it's lost. I still have a hope, because these things happen. Look what's happened. Up, uh, up north with this Neolithic uh, palace that they've discovered. I still have a hope that one day a JCB digger in Jesmond will go out there and there'll be a little urn. And somebody will take it out and they'll oh, and it'll say Bede's translation. <laughs> and there we are. He'll be the father of English languages to Bede. And then Alfred, as you know, King Alfred the Great, made some translations, or had translations made, and then there were bits and bobs and bits and bobs, until you come to Wycliffe in the 14th century. John Wycliffe, a European-known theologian, very stern man, a brilliant man, wanted the Bible to be in English. Uh, and he organized it so that it was translated into English. Uh, rougher English, but still it was in the English language. And he got followers in Oxford. Now, it's worth saying things here. Oxford played a massive part in this business. So it was mainly Massive, it was massively concentrated on Oxford, the scholars who did it. The vision of medieval scholars, or the notion of medieval scholars, and particularly Oxford scholars, it's always supposed to be rather privileged at that time, was that they were self-serving, uh, wealthy, uh, plump, complacent, just there for two or three years, and then they got the best jobs. 
and that was that. Not there. These men copied out the Bible in English, and you can still see the desks they did it. You can still see the desks in Merton College. They had these lines, like Adam Smith's lines of people making pins, and they copied this and passed it on, copied it and passed it on. Then they strapped it round their bodies, manuscripts, and wore a long woolen gown and had a staff. And the one long woolen gown, and they were called the Lollards. These were young, we would now call them students. And they tramped all over the country with these. And they gave these manuscripts to people who read them and passed them on to others. And that kept going. That infuriated the church and inflamed the state. Wycliffe was put on show trial. He was condemned to death. He was only saved because his patron was a man called John of Gaunt, who at that time was the most powerful man of state. But he died two years later, as he was meant to die. And 50 years after he died, they dug up his bones and they burned his bones, 50 years afterwards. And they burned his bones because at that time, it was believed that at the last trump, bodies would rise from the graves and go towards heaven and meet their souls. But if you didn't have a body, you were condemned. So that's why they burnt him. That's why burning at the stake was so important. But these Lollards went on, these young men, for at least another century. And in the 15th century, at least 150 of them were caught, tortured, and burnt at the stake, and numerous more, a few more hundred, were caught and merely tortured, and so on. But they kept taking this word round. And these men are all profound Roman Catholics. They're complete believers. They're challenging things about the state. They think it's too corrupt. They think it shouldn't own land. They think it shouldn't own treasure. But they, they're not challenging the ideas inside religion. They're not challenging the notion of religion. They're challenging the wealth and what they see as the corruption of religion. They're trying to make English the language of the Bible. And for this, they are burnt and persecuted. And it's extraordinary that that went on. And the state backed it. And it was callous and terrible. Then you come to the next man, who's the major man. I mustn't spend too much time on this, because I like this man very much. And I'm going to get a move on with the impact business. But a man called William Tyndall, who was a son of a wealthy family, he again was educated at Oxford. Uh, he uh, was, by any account, an absolutely extraordinary, brilliant scholar. Um, he was supposed to be the first man in Europe who taught himself Hebrew. He knew Greek, Latin, Syriac, French, Italian. By the time he was about 22 or 23. He went to Cambridge to meet Erasmus, the great European scholar. Erasmus wasn't there, but he loved Erasmus and followed Erasmus. Um, and he too, all he wanted to do was to translate the Bible into English. It was a passion. As I say, he was a wealthy family. He could have got sinecures all over the place. He probably had a career as a bishop or whatever ahead of him. Uh, but that's what he wanted to do. And we owe a great deal to him. And before I go on to say what happened to him, this is why I think we owe, owe to him. He had a genius for translation. In my view, we, the English language has been lucky. That the, at the start, when it became a world language, which is, say, the end of the 16th century, there were two geniuses, which is two more than most people ever have the luck to have. We had Tyndall, who was a genius of translation and rhythm, and we had Shakespeare, who was a genius of imagination. And actually, one of them, Tyndall, very much influenced the other, Shakespeare, even though their dates seem apart, but they do, as I'll show. And Tyndall just leaned into the language. And way, the way he spoke, the rhythms, and the words he used are on all our tongues every day of the week still. 
And these were written in the 1520s. Not necessarily the beliefs, I didn't say that, but the words, but just a rhythm for a start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. That measured precision of prose runs through our literature ever since. Not exclusively, it's challenged by demotic forms, by other forms, and that's fine. But it's there. And also the rhythm in our poetry comes in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. It's there. And in the idiom, Shakespeare gave more words to our language. Tyndall gave more idioms. Let there be light, for the plot in his face. Let my people go, the apple of his eye, a man after his own heart. Signs of the times, under the sun, to rise and shine, the land of the living. My brothers keep on and on and on. And variations of those. Now, there are two things to say about that. The first is, partly because of the, his, his knowledge of Hebrew, which he thought was very close to Anglo-Saxon. I forgot to say, he knew Anglo-Saxon as well. He thought they were very close together. There's a, a, a great preference for monosyllables. And out of these monosyllables, let there be light, fell flat on his face, signs of the time, to rise and shine. On and on it goes. And then the, the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and life was the light of men. So he's choosing the simplest, most direct words he can, again and again and again, because he wants it to be widely understood. But out of those monosyllables, he, like Shakespeare, can make the most extraordinary thoughts. To be or not to be, that is the, well, question kind of messes it up, but still. Uh, so they're going for the monosyllables, and that's one of the things that drives through our literature. He went to that for clarity, which he, he achieved, extraordinary. But another thing was his vision. And in an argument with somebody in his mid-twenties, when again they wouldn't give him a job, he was rather a shy man, we're told, but completely, you could say obstinate, you could say intransigent, which is much better. He wouldn't do what this man wanted him to do, wouldn't stop translating. And, and he said, and this is well reported, I will make a ploughboy understand the, I think he said the gospel of the Bible, let's say the gospel, I will make the ploughboy understand the gospel as well as thou. Now, the interesting thing about that is he chose ploughboy, as Erasmus had before him. And the interesting thing about that is that the ploughboy was the innocent person of the time in medieval literature and medieval time. He also harked back to the apostles, as they thought, that Christ had called up ordinary people, fishermen, men of the land. So I will tell the ploughboy, but even more important, I think, he knew that the ploughboy was illiterate. And so he was writing a Bible to be spoken aloud, a preaching Bible, to go into the memory and not to go down on notebooks. And his influence was so powerful that when those 50 scholars sat down to put King James's command into operation in the, a century or so later, they too when they came to the final version, sitting around in a room, did not pass each other bits of paper. They read it aloud. They read every sentence aloud and they corrected it and said, no, it sounds better, it sounds better, sounds better. That we owe to Tyndall. Tyndall, and he said, oh, but Tyndall, well, what can you say? 
He was self-exiled at the end of his 20s. He was pursued around Europe by Walsingham and Henry VIII's spies, Henry VIII, the great vandal, which he was in so many ways. Um, he was also pursued by the Pope's spies the, uh, from Rome. So he was pursued by two lots of spies. He went around the Netherlands, which was a safe haven, from safe haven to safe haven, translating and translating. He was sending his books back across in ships to England. The Navy came out to stop the books. Can you imagine? At one stage, he sent, by this time printing was in, so he was sending a lot of books back. And he was being subsidized by his wealthy friends in the West Country of England. At one stage, he sent a shipment of 6,000 books over. And the Bishop of London bought every one of them and burnt them on the steps of the old St. Paul's Cathedral. And it took three days. You can't make that up. He did. To which Tyndall said, good, he said. The money will enable me to print more books and the people will be outraged. And he was right on both counts. Eventually, even after Henry VIII had had a profound night of theological doubt and decided that he should be a Protestant, um, <laughs> they still pursued and persecuted Tyndall. Thomas Cromwell pretended, he, well, he went over and tried to help, but he didn't. Uh, and Tyndall didn't come back to this country because he knew they would get him. As <laughs> simple as that. Eventually, he was got by another Oxford guy who betrayed him. He was put in a dungeon. He kept translating in the dungeon. He's brought out of the dungeon. He was strangled just before he died. He said, God, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. And then he was burnt. He was burnt in a very clever way. They put greenwood on, so he burnt very slowly. Yeah, and so that was that. And he was one of the greatest men we've ever had in our history. So the Bible is now on its way. And it'll teach me to speak without looking at my notes. Um, where are we now? Um, and what it has become, I think, well, we all, I think it's a pivotal book. The most pivotal book, single book ever written, and one could contend that. It's a claim that's been made by poets and statesmen and, and masses of congregations over the last 400 years. Um, it's the steel of will and drive that led to democracy and the abolition of slavery. It became the bedding for gospel music and the spirituals who set in motion blues, jazz, and rock are the unique cultural gift of America to the world. It's defined and redefined our sexual attitudes, our attitudes to poverty, uh, our attitudes to women. Uh, and it's been followed and believed in and given hope to millions of people around the world. Now I know of the dangers of being too positive about the Bible. God in the Old Testament is often vengeful, jealous, destructive, intolerable, and very ungodlike. He's been used as a god of war on many occasions, and words which whole people once thought were his words have spurred on slaughter. That, too, is part of its impact. Even now, I think the more interesting question is not why Jehovah was a terrible, jealous, unfair god. The interesting thing is why all of them at that time were like that. All the gods were like that. Why did they want their gods to be like that? Later on, we wanted our gods to be immortal, invisible, God-only wise. Uh, that's why we, they didn't. They wanted, whether it's Jehovah and all the people misbehaving in Mount Panassus in Greece, or other gods, they wanted them to be, to be people of multifaceted, change, unpredictable. And that's a question worth going. And, and if people say, well, Christianity is uniquely destructive, they're just wrong. Whichever way they played, Genghis Khan wasn't a Christian. 
And Stalin, they tried to say, well, he had a bit of a Christian boy. He didn't affect the way he ran everything. Xerxes wasn't a Christian. Hitler wasn't a Christian. Uh, Mao wasn't a Christian. Pol Pot wasn't a Christian. And they did as savage things as had ever been known that people do to each other. So the idea, which again has taken root over the last few years, that Christianity is uniquely wicked, uniquely to blame for all this, is just not, it's, it's, I'm afraid it's nonsense. It doesn't bear any serious examination at all. I've got time to concentrate on only a few areas. And uh, I'll start with language, and I'll be brief here, because that's the one that everybody gives it. Even the militant atheists among us rush to say, oh, well, the language, the language. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely true. Um, and the stories, of course, Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, Solomon, Salome, Mary and Joseph, Judas, these stories rippled through and still ripple through our literature. But the language is something extraordinary. Uh, and the language, which I've discussed a bit with Tyndall, uh, in the words, uh, influenced the literature as well. I haven't time to talk more about the words, but I have time to say something which I think is, well, something that, um, you hesitate to say this, but I haven't read it before anyway, so it might be new, you never know. I've, there's lots of books I haven't read. Um, the King James Bible was published in 1611. Shakespeare died in 1616, five years later. Um, I said in this book that Shakespeare was influenced by what became the King James Bible. One or two of reviewers, for convenience sake, got to have a, a little sharp jab, uh, forgot what became, and they said, how could he be influenced by? Uh, because he's 1611, he came out, and he died, he'd done most of his work, and that one. But listen to this. Statistics, but not many. Tyndall was not allowed to be printed in the 16th century, there were many Bibles coming out after this Henry VIII change. Many Bibles in English, the Coverdale Bible. Oops. The Coverdale Bible, the Great Bible, not the Tyndall Bible. They really had it in for him. <laughs> but there was something called the Geneva Bible, printed in Geneva. And it became the most popular Bible by far. Partly because they did it very well over there, it was a small Bible, it was cheap to buy, and it became the Bible. People loved it more than any other, the Tyndall Bible. And when Shakespeare went to Stratford-upon-Avon, which he would do every Sunday, you remember his father got fined three times for not going, it was compulsory, it was illegal, it, it was illegal not to go. And when he listened to the Bible at school, which he would have done every day, and one can have a guess, as you have to have so often with Shakespeare, that it would be one of the books in his house, the Geneva Bible, uh, he would hear what became the King James Bible. For instance, in... Genesis, 81% of Genesis is the translation in the King James Bible. 81% is, in the Geneva Bible, is by Tyndall. And in the King James Bible, 85% of the King James Bible is Tyndall. In other words, when you're listening to Genesis, you're listening mostly to Tyndall. And I'll go right to the end. I can do it Matthew. 85% in the Geneva Bible was Tyndall. 82% in the King James Bible is Tyndall. And in Revelation, 92.7% was Tyndall in the Geneva Bible, 92.5% was in the King James Bible. In other words, the New Testament as a whole and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, are eight-tenths at least Tyndall. And 
Matthew Smith, who actually made the introduction of the King James Bible, acknowledged that. He didn't acknowledge Tyndall because he was still a pariah. He said, we have not tried to make a new Bible, but make, make old Bibles better. And he implied that they'd taken on many old Bibles, which they had done. But he didn't say that eight-tenths of it was by one man, Tyndall. And Tyndall influenced Shakespeare directly in the rhythm, in the imagery. And I can give you just a few examples. In Matthew, for instance... Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall to the ground without your father. Matthew. Hamlet. There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. And on they go. But let's take Matthew again. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. Matthew. And in measure for measure. Death for death. Haste still pays haste, and leisure answers leisure. Like doth quit like, and measure still for measure. And that rolled through Shakespeare, and the images and the rhythms and that rolled through Shakespeare from Tyndall, from Tyndall, which became the King James Bible. So you have Tyndall and Shakespeare locked together, forming the foundation stone of what became the world language. And then after Shakespeare, the floodgates opened. John Donne, there are not so eloquent books in the world as the scriptures. Milton virtually set out to write, to rewrite Genesis. John Bunyan, who at one time sold almost as many copies as the Bible itself for a few years, Pilgrim's Progress, as you know. He's utterly steeped. There's not a sentence that doesn't refer back to, allude to, is tinctured by uh, the King James Bible. In political pamphlets, it came in John Dryden with his attack on Charles II's bastards in Absalom and Achitophel. Defoe, Daniel Defoe, at one stage, you know, was set out, as you know, set out to be a Presbyterian minister. He's supposed to be one of the, arguably, him and Richardson, the founders of the English novel, English language novel. Uh, he had a huge respect for the Bible, and his works are saturated with it. And you will remember, in Robinson Crusoe, one of the first things he takes when he goes back to the boat to rescue the essentials is the Bible. There's William Blake, of course, and Byron, even people who hated the Bible couldn't get away from using it. Bible used images from the Old Testament constantly. Coleridge read the Bible passionately every day, he said, from the age of about 30 on. George Eliot, who turned away from her Christianity because of the encroachment of the German scholars on the validity of the scholarship in the Testaments. They challenged it. As you know, she, <coughs> she translated German and worked with them. She thought, this is not accurate. This is not real history. She moved away, but she never lost the sort of faith in what was inside the Bible. For instance, Silas Marner as, is practically a parable. Then there are Brontes, again steep, rather like John Bunyan. Then there's Dickens, the death of little Joe in Bleak House, is again almost a biblical parable. And then there's Tennyson in Memoriam, and it just goes on. Over in America, too, call me Ishmael. Perhaps the most rocket-fired opening line in literature means that you have to know who Ishmael is. Uh, and Hawthorne's Scarlet Letters, taken from the story of David and Bathsheba. Faulkner's ambivalent about Christianity, but he's full of it when he's writing it. And so it goes on to John Steinbeck. Well, Harriet... Harriet um, Beecher Stowe with Uncle Tom's Cabin. There are 400 references to the Bible in that book. It's supposed to be one of the books that helped for the, towards the emancipation of slavery. Uh, John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath. Twelve people are piled on this truck to go from the Oklahoma Dust Bowl to the West Coast to the Promised Land. The 12 tribes of Israel coming out to go to the Promised Land. There's a man in there, a preacher called Casey, who is talking about, who has lost his faith. That's the interesting thing. 
Uh, but he talks about his loss of faith and faith the entire time and runs it through. And again, with East of Eden, that's another Steinberg book, of course, that is based on a Cain and Abel working twice through. And on it goes. We come to our own time with William Golding, the spire, and Tony Morrison's beloved, and Bob Dylan's lyrics. But perhaps, for me, most remarkably of all, in this panoply of writers in the English-speaking world who've used, who've taken, who've bedded themselves consciously and unconsciously on the King James Bible is T.S. Eliot. An American, as you know, came over here, uh, had a massive breakdown after World War I, uh, collected himself together on Margate Sands, I connect nothing with nothing, uh, and he would seem to be the um, secular icon of the 20th century, certainly by many thought to be the greatest poet. When there were ruins, by ruins he meant ruins of countries, ruins of civilizations, and ruins of faith. And out of that should come something new, or at least something which owed nothing to the past. That's what you expect, that's what you sort of feel when you read The Wasteland for the first time, or even Provok. But he was, in fact, an Anglican. He was a regular churchgoer. He's a warden at St. Stephen Church in London. He took the collection. You could rely on him because he was working on a bank at the time. <laughs> he went on retreats. He confessed his sins. He received absolution. And in Ash Wednesday in the Four Quartets and Little Ginning, they're impregnated with the belief and language of the King James Version. While, like Milton, he attempted his own version of the opening of Genesis in Chorus to the Rock. He wrote, In the beginning God created the world, waste and void, waste and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And when they were men, in their various ways, they struggled in torment towards God. It isn't anything like as good as Tyndall, but he's trying to do it. And that's the important thing. So it carries through, and it carries through. It's in us, the language, the literature, and the stories. The effect of the King James Bible on, in England is that it gave the English people permission to think rather than a duty to believe. And the place of the King James Version is that it was the medium through which thought was liberated. And then that read on to other things, led on to other things. And the most exciting of all when I was researching this was what happened with regard to slavery and the place that the King James Bible played in that great drama. Now, as far back as we can have recorded history, we're talking about Assyrians, Babylonians, we're talking about Chinese. In the early days, we're talking about Indians uh, in, in Asia. And we're talking about all the Romans, Greeks. There have been slaves. And they have been thought of as inevitable. They have been thought of as part of nature. There were slaves. It was inevitable. It was not questioned. Sometimes it was questioned by the slaves, and there were slave uprisings. But there were slaves. Slavery was part of the human condition. And one of the great things that's happened in the last 200 years is that slavery has been abolished. It still goes on, we know, around the fringes. We know that. And there's sex slavery. And there's... But the idea that slavery is inevitable, the idea that slavery is God-given or state-given or nature-given, that is gone. That has been abolished. It's probably the greatest single humanitarian act that there has ever been, that we as a species have done for each other. And the King James Bible was at the center of that. 
You read about it in Soil Economic Social Political, the King James Bible was at the center of that. On three ways, it's a triangle. The Bible is full of slavery. Those people who believed in slavery, they could find instances of slavery all over the Bible, and they used them. The Old Testament's full of people who were slaves, enslaved, had slaves, and so on. Went right through. And there were more particular ways of looking at it. For instance, uh, Noah cursed Canaan, son of Ham, and condemned all his offspring to slavery. When Cain was cursed, it was said wrongly that the curse was that he, in, the, in later interpretations in the early Middle Ages, that the curse was that he became black. So blackness and slavery became loathsomely associated. But just look around the Bible, it's full of slaves. So they, people could say rightly, as they said in the Deep South, in the American War, in the American, in American Civil War, we have biblical authority. The Greeks kept slaves. The Romans kept hundreds of thousands of slaves. The greatest civilizations have kept slaves. We are doing what everybody else did and what great and noble civilizations did, which is what they said. They said it very eloquently in the South. And there was many, much evidence for it. There was also, though, evidence if you eked it out, if you plucked it out, for the abolition of slavery. And I take one man here. There were many people involved in this country, Scotland and England, that's called the, both in this country, in, in, over in the West Indies and in America. But the punching through came in this country, in the House of Parliament. Because the idea of abolishing slavery at the end of the 18th century was simply off the radar. There are, peoples cannot, there are things that people cannot and do not think about until there's a change. You can't think that's going to happen, and then it happened, and the world has changed. And that was that. Um, but they couldn't do it right away. And one of the ways they thought to do it, and they organized themselves very cleverly, was to abolish the slave trade, first of all. To stop the trade as the first measure. And then the stopping of slavery would follow. And to stop the trade, you had to have an act of parliament. And to have an act of parliament, you had to have somebody in parliament who drove it through. That was William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was an extremely wealthy young man, extremely wealthy young man. He was a friend of uh, the Prime Minister, the youngest Prime Minister we'd had, Will, um, Pitt, the younger Pitt, at university. He was idle, indolent, all that sort of stuff. And then he went on a European tour with a, a rigorous man, a school teacher, who'd been a school teacher back in Hull, where he'd gone to school, and he was converted to Christianity. And from then on, he read the Bible every day. He had a sort of nervous breakdown. He came out reading the Bible every day and devoted his entire life and his wealth, and it turned out his health, to the abolition of the slave trade. And he made in 1789 what's supposed to be one of the greatest speeches ever made in the House of Commons. As you know from Dickens, the way he, he, he knew shorthand when he was a reporter in the Commons. It's wonderfully reported. And the four-hour speech is wonderfully detailed. It's a book. It's a small book, a short book. And he addressed people in there for four hours. And he invited the Liverpool merchants to come and sit in the gallery. Now, the Liverpool merchants were part of a mercantile class in this country. Between 30 and 40% of the wealth of this country came from the slave trade. That much. Not just the shipping of slaves over, but the making of things, the making of boats, the making of manacles, uh, all sorts of things. And the Liverpool merchants were the wealthiest of all. And he addressed them. And he used two things. First of all, he'd gone and found out what really happened in that crossing. Because most people in this country simply didn't know about it. It was offshore, happened in Africa, went to there, came back to there. 
Nobody saw it except a few sailors involved, a very tiny percent of the population. Uh, so he didn't know, but he told people what really happened. Because the fantasy was these people had taken over almost of their own free will. They were given lovely meals on the ship. Uh, they were, they, absolutely true. It was a propaganda. They were, their, their beds were scented every night with herbs from their own land. You've got to read it to believe it. But, and, and Wilberforce said, no, this is what happens. This is what happens. This is the number who die along. This is the food they get. This, and he, at the end, the Liverpool merchants were weeping, we are told. Uh, and he started what became, he was vilified. There were assassination attempts. He had to get security guards. He was spat on, on in the streets. He had Pitt, the prime minister, as his protector. There's only so much a protector can do. And he kept going through it. And he hammered away until 1807, when he was too ill to make a speech. The slave trade, trade was abolished by this country. It was abolished by this country. And Wilberforce then persuaded Pitt and the others to get the British Navy, then the greatest navy in the world by far, to patrol the North Atlantic and stop all the other European countries taking slavery over, to the great detriment of our trade and our reputation. And they tried, to, and gradually they squeezed it and stopped it. And in 18... 33, slavery was abolished, and then slowly the domino effect went around the world. And Wilberforce used the New Testament. In Colossians, we read, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. He quoted Galatians. Christ says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. He dug this out and used the Beatitudes. And fortified by that, and ablaze with what he saw as the message from Jesus Christ, he pushed that through. And achieved what the great historian called W.H. Leckie said, the unweary, the unweary, unostentatious and inglorious crusade of England against slavery, which may probably be regarded as among the three or four perfectly virtuous acts recorded in the history of the world. But that wasn't all. You have, the, you have those who want to retain it, resting their case in the King James Bible. Those who want to abolish it, resting their case in the King James Bible. So the King James Bible is going head to head, the same book. But there's another book, which is also the King James Bible. And this book was adopted by, with world-changing effect, the Afro-Americans. When the Methodists from this country, who were a powerful force, too enthusiastic for the Anglicans who didn't like their enthusiasm, and they used that word, kicked them out, uh, these again were Oxford men. They went to America to spread the word, and one of them, Whitefield, could command audiences of 30,000 people up and down the East Coast, talking about the coming of the Lord, uh, and the Methodists. The Methodists were the first white people to go into the black strongholds down south and preach Christianity, and because they wanted to save souls. It wasn't political in that sense, but it was religious. They wanted to save souls, so they preached. They took the word to the American, black Americans. And they took the stories there. And they wrongly, but massively effectively, began to allow black men to become priests. But 
ordained them into the priesthood because the bishops, Anglican bishops, had fled back to England. So there was nobody else to do them except the priests. It was irregular, but they did it. So they built up fortification there. And an enormous number of things happened. One was, as you know, they brought over millions, literally millions of black Africans from different tribes and muddled them all up with different languages and muddled them all up so they couldn't talk to each other very well and keep them down. And the King James Bible began to give them a common language, which they took up and used. And they used it, and the King James stories gave them a united culture, which became the spirituals and the gospel songs, and went on from there, ending up with jazz and rock, whatever you want. America's unique contribution to the culture of the world came from there. But above all, it gave them liberation theology. Because they believed in Moses, they believed that Moses had led people out of slavery. And they could find their own Moses. And they found their own Moses among their own people. And that was where Tyndall's genius paid off. Centuries later. Because these men, I've been down to these churches in, in the South America. In the big churches, there's a screen. Sorry. Big churches, there's a screen at the back. And the black favored blacks who helped the bosses to run these big estates could stand there and listen to the service. But this was a preacher's Bible. And so what they heard, and they were people whose memories were very, very muscular, just like the Celts. They could remember Reem just like the Celts could. So they took these words back to their own churches, which they built down in the swamps, and I've seen those too. Very moving, very, very primitive. And preached what they'd heard and talked about what they had and remembered it. So they took it forward. They took the words forward. And let my people go, the songs they sung. Or bound for Canaan land, or the gospel train, and so on. And that surge carried them through. That surge carried them into the Civil War. And of course the liberals came in. And of course they did, and honor to them. And of course the enlightenment was a factor. And honor to that, but the drive was the drive from the Bible and the drive from the Africans having, Afro-Americans having got hold of the Bible. And they drove it through. And after emancipation, when things were even worse for some people, uh, after, after that time of emancipation, they were more subjected, they were poorer. It was still the Bible that was driving through the people who wanted proper equality. And it's obviously, again, no coincidence that on the morning he was shot, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was reading from Isaiah, which he often read, uh, talking about every I the I Have a Dream speech. And that took it through. And it was the Bible that took it through. And one of the reasons I object so much to um, Richard Dawkins, whom I admire greatly as a scientist and a zoologist, and I've read him with enormous pleasure. And whenever I met him, I've enjoyed his company. But I wish you wouldn't write about religion uh, because it's offensive. And I'll give you two small examples because it's, 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 it's the megaphone of the religious discussion at the moment, this kind of militant atheism. And it's worth challenging, not from a religious point of view, although that's possible if you are of that persuasion, but certainly from the historical point of view. The... For a scholar of his eminence, the ignorance is almost criminal. 
For instance, talking about the Africans, African-Americans, he says, and the Bible is often used, King James Bible, to keep people quiet as a soporific, make them obedient, just like on the plantations, the bosses threw a few Bible verses to the slaves to make them think, oh, there's another life so they can just continue being slaves and not make any fuss at all. That's completely wrong. It's just completely, completely wrong. He hasn't done any research. It's just totally wrong. It's insulting, the African-Americans, but it's wrong. I mean, would he examine the way a bird's feathers developed and slap some view on it? Of course he wouldn't. What do you do without that for? There are many examples, but I'll give you one other, because I think he should be looked at, because they've had the megaphone for a long time, those guys. They still have it. He's talking about the Aborigines in Australia, of course. And he said they were masters of survival, and we admire them for that, but there was all this terrible clutter in their minds about Dries, and we can't understand all that. And that, again, is profoundly offensive. Maybe those dream songs, maybe that sense of religion that they had enabled them to survive. But more profoundly than that, every civilization we know has sought to find an, ex find an explanation with the tools at hand for why we're here, why people die unnecessary, why there's thunder, why there's drought, why there's lightning, why there's floods. We've all tried to do it. And people have worshipped trees, they've worshipped cattle, they worship mountains, they worship the sun, trying to find explanations, that's all. Not to be dismissed, and maybe who knows? In 100 or 200 years' time, when we're clever enough, people will find in those dream songs all sorts of explanations of things. But to dismiss it in that way, as it does again and again, is just not the way to proceed. With bodies of knowledge, just like the body of Christian knowledge, you, to dismiss it is unforgivable. It's a body of knowledge which for hundreds and hundreds of years people like us clove to for reasons which are understandable and that's what we've got to do, understand them. And if we think that atheistic reason is the pinnacle of human civilization and that explains everything forever and then in 5,000 years time they'll still look back at us and say they got it right and we've been... I don't think that's going to be the case. I really don't. Now then, I think there's a case can be made, which I do in the book, but I don't think I've got much time here now, because there's two more big points, one more big point I want to make. One was slavery. But I think there's a case that can be made for the development of modern science being linked in with the King James Bible, certainly in this country. In the 1650s, uh, in, again, I'm afraid in Oxford, Wadham College Gardens, a few young men came together, Boyle, Christopher Wren, Hook, uh, to form what became the Royal Society in 1660. And these men were profoundly religious. Robert Boyle, father of chemistry, son of the Earl of Cork, wrote books about his religious beliefs, which integrated with books about his ideas on chemistry. Wren and so on. Most of all, Newton, who joined a few years later, as we know, was a massively religious man. A very strange religious man, but religion mattered to him enormously. They were driven by that. Their great master was Francis Bacon from the beginning of the century, from the beginning of the 17th century, uh, the great scholar and essayist, and people think he's mightily clever, and of course a lot of people think he's so clever that he wrote Shakespeare as well, but still that's another matter. Um, Francis Bacon, who thought the world could be understood from two books, the book of nature and the book of the scriptures. And the obligation of the intellectual 
was to interrogate, that's the word he used, interrogate both and see how they came together and make them work together. And so the interrogation of nature through observation became the mantra of the Royal Society. But the idea that they were doing it to validate the scriptures was also in their minds. And this went through. I mentioned Newton, but it went through again and again. You had um, Newton in the 17th century, in the 18th century, and Boyle, of course, and Hooke, of course. But in the 18th century, you had Joseph Priestley, the great dissenting minister who discovered oxygen. In the 19th century, you had James Clark Maxwell and Michael Faraday, who belonged to a Sandemanian group of Sandemanians, which came from Scotland, a very strict group indeed. And that fed in James Clark Maxwell, who was a, an Anglican in the 20th century at Eddington, and so it goes on. It, isn't, it doesn't exclude the influence of Enlightenment thought and Enlightenment thought coming in from Europe at all. But it's there, and it's not to be dismissed, and it's interesting to play around with it sometimes. There's this great idea of there being a first cause, being a single first cause. Now, to be ridiculously elliptical, but you're allowed to be in conversation, I hope, um, it's partly because of Newton that people think there's got to be a first cause. Logically, has there got to be a first cause? Has there got to be a start? Is that Big Bang 13 and a half billion years ago the end of something or the beginning of something or the middle of something? But there had to be a first cause for Newton because there was a God. And God was the first cause for him. And, so there, and there had to be an ordered universe. Martin Rees, the former professor, the former head of the uh, Royal Society, president of the Royal Society, is the Astronomer Royal, as you know, Master of Trinity College, Cambridge, and so on. He thinks that the idea of ordering the universe at that time came from the order that these men found in the Bible. They found an order and a prime and a first cause. And use that, use that system to go into their science and find a way to organize their science. When Hooke looked through his microscopes and found these amazing things, i.e. insects, which he could see close up and with his complication, he thought he was seeing the work of God and said so and wrote so and so on. So there's something there, cognate between the two. And I'm quite entertained with the Hadron Collider because, well, as you know here, <laughs> comes from this country. Uh, your Professor Hickson was going for a walk in the Cairngorms, heady place, and he suddenly thought he had a great idea. I mean great in the sense that he had a magnificent idea. That the way the universe moved, that the way the universe made, as it were, physical sense was because there was particle called a, which is now called the boson, the Higgs boson. And this particle which has no size, no, no, moves through the universe and, as it were, imparts movement and life to everything else. That's the best I can manage with it. Uh, <laughs> and the interesting thing to me is, first of all, is that, Professor Higgs, is that this was a revelation. And he described it as a revelation. Maybe he's using the word carelessly, but I don't think he's the sort of man to do anything carelessly. And the Hadron Collider built at fantastic expense in these mountains in Switzerland, 23 kilometers going in different ways to crash together to find the Higgs boson, which they still haven't found it yet. They haven't found even a trace of it yet. It's, I, I, I don't think it's too, well, it might be. But I, you remember a similar conversation going on in the Middle Ages about how many angels could dance on the point of a needle. Still, I think they're cognate there, and there's something in very much the way that the Bible influenced the early great and pioneering scientists.
And on it goes. I talk a lot about the Bible and women, but to give you just one example how that can change, things can change in that. The American, they, as you remember, Abraham was married to Sarah. Sarah was, uh, could not have children. So Sarah offered up her slave, Hagar, to Abraham. Abraham had a child by Hagar, Ishmael. Then Sarah conceived, and Sarah, great jealousy of Hagar, made Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael into the desert uh, with a little food, hoping that they would die. They didn't die in the Bible. God intervened and saved them. They wouldn't come back, though. They stayed there out in the desert. Call me Ishmael. Now, for centuries, believe it or not, including people including the great Aquinas and Augustine and, Wick Augustine and Wycliffe, thought that that story showed what a noble person Sarah was. And Sarah was to be admired. And Sarah was something that all women should aspire to. Recently, a lot of, uh, a lot of women in America particularly, particularly uh, Afro-American women, see Hagar as their spokesman. A theologian, Dolores Williams, has written recently, Hagar has spoken to generation after generation of black women because her story has been validated as true by suffering black people. She and Ishmael together as family, like many black American families in which a lone woman mother struggles to hold a family together in spite of the poverty to which ruling class economics consign it. So the Bible, with its lush contradictions, can still be turned almost inside out to provide ammunition for today's keenest controversies. And then the Bible's influence, which again is very rarely spoken of, in philanthropy and helping poor people. In the 19th century, you have the Christian socialists, John Ruskin, Charles Kingsley, and their protégés, people like Octavia Hill, who was a woman who ran a factory by the time, a toy factory by the time she was 14 with her sister, and dedicated herself to refurbishing little houses and cottages in these horrible backyards of the East End of London and putting gardens in and around them and developing that. And she had a tremendous influence there. She was a Christian socialist. She came at it because of the Christianity. And her impact was immense. And then there were the, the uh, Eleanor Ranyard and the Bible women who took a mop, a bucket, and a Bible into these places. And there were the slum sisters, again, these were working class women who went into the slums with the Bible, again driven by the Bible, as so many people were, to do the good work they wanted to do. And Caroline Booth, William Booth's wife. And it wasn't only the middle and lower middle and lower middle classes. There was a woman called Josephine Butler. She was the cousin of, the Earl, she was cousin of Earl Grey. The um, Prince Leopold of Belgium called her the most beautiful woman in Europe. And she, as an Anglican, devoted herself to helping to abolish child prostitution. There were 2,000 brothels in London in the 1880s, and many of them were, had a very high percentage of children in them. And she worked. It worked. She got the age of consent raised from 13 to 16, and she secured the repeal of a Contagious Diseases Act, which applied only to women, and so on. It drove them through the Bible, and that again is forgotten, just as it's forgotten that philanthropy, the building of libraries, the building of colleges, was often driven through by the Bible. And finally, the second big point, the first being slavery, or I think the others are quite big points, and the second big point is this, that the Bible enabled. And again, we've allowed it to be wiped out of our history, and of our history. And I think we should 
take property in the past, take some possession of the past, instead of being apologizing for it and be ashamed of it all the time. There's plenty to wish people back there hadn't done. Fine. There are plenty that we wish we hadn't done when people over there are looking back on us. Fine. But there isn't any way to go on if that's all you do. It's too thin. It's too unfair. It's, it's just too... It isn't interesting. It doesn't say what we are. We are rich and poor. We're good and bad. And to toss the good away and say, oh, we were terrible people, cringe. It's awful. And we shouldn't do it. And one of the things that happened in this country was that the trigger to a development as great as the abolition of slavery was shot from here, this country. And it was the development of modern democracy. I'm not talking about Pericles and Demosthenes. I'm talking about modern democracy. And that came about through and by the Bible. In the British Civil Wars in the 1640s, they were Bible-driven. In those wars, incidentally, up and down the realms, more people were killed proportionately, more men, than in the First World War. We think of swaggering cavaliers and do roundheads and a bit of fun. It wasn't. It was savage, brutal, slaughterous. And it was fought through the Bible. And when they brought the king to trial, and throughout the battles themselves, the men around the campfires, and this is well reported because it was the first great age of pamphleteering. There are thousands of pamphlets written about that time by men from that time. As incidentally they were in the American Civil War, when the American soldiers around the campfires the night before the battles were studying the Bible to see if they were doing the right thing. But let's confine ourselves to here. They went round, and what they did not know how to do was to bring to execution properly a divinely appointed king. James I had written a great book for his time on the divine right of kings, which had been in the air, in the ether, for centuries. Not only in Christianity, the Egyptian was the sun god, you know about that, the divine right. God spoke to kings alone, whatever civilization it was. And it was very planted deep here. And Charles I ran with that idea very, very strongly. And he was a divinely appointed king. Now, the way people in our countries that got rid of kings and rulers over centuries was generally by assassination. But they didn't want to do that. They wanted to do it honorably. And they found, always finding texts in the Bible. I haven't time now because I'm running out of time. But they quoted Malachi to each other. They quoted and Babylon was the, was the King Charles I's um, court and everything, the, the, the way they used Babylon. Um, for instance, Malachi, I said, uh, preachers were saying an abomination when Charles married, when Charles uh, married a Roman Catholic, Charles I, like, an abomination is committed. Judah hath married the daughter of a strange god. The Lord will cut off the man that doth this. They preached sermons on that. That was from Malachi, and everybody knew what they meant. So they're battling through the Bible. And so is Charles to retain his position. He wrote, he writes, that it's clearly warranted and strictly commended in both the Old and New Testaments. There it is said, where the word of the king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what dost thou? So this was fought around Bible texts, because that was the only way they could get done what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was something quite extraordinary that had never, ever been done in history. They put him on trial with a jury, with his defense lawyers, with lawyers against him, in that great hall, which is still there in Westminster, 
they put him on trial. This sent shockwaves through Europe that the law could try a ruler and a divinely appointed ruler, which they did, and they found him guilty. And three days later, he was executed, and a ripple went through Europe. And a few years later, two or three years later, upriver from where they'd done it, to Westminster, up at Putney, the Putney debates began, where the words and the ideas of democracy were developed and flourished and taken across to America. There'd been an immense move to America by Presbyterians particularly with the words that God is leaving England because of this terrible court of Charles I being Roman Catholic and worshipping images and so on. And these very educated, perhaps one of the most literate diasporas of all time, they rejoiced in this and they took this and their assemblies in America, which had been assemblies to organize their church, became assemblies to organize the state as well. And democracy took place, took seed there. Now a great number of other things happened, of course it did. But that was the seed of it. That was where it began. And that was where we have something to say about what we did and carried it through and still carry it through. And there's other things to say, but I've said enough. Except one very last thing. When Obama spoke in that great hall, a few months ago, uh, came to Westminster Hall and spoke there. You remember, and those of us, the Lords and the Commons, turned up to listen. He was clearly wanting to make a great speech, and he made a good speech. And it was fine. Very good. But what I wanted to say to him, isn't it worth remembering that just down the steps from where you're speaking, just there was where King Charles I was tried and democracy, if it began anywhere, began there. And behind you, <coughs> along a corridor, was the old House of Commons where, slave, where the slave trade and finally slavery was abolished. Thank you. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.